We again return to the most fundamental text in all the New Testament. The Apostle Paul expresses the things in this chapter that are of first importance. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he turns our attention to the facts of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See if you agree with the division presented in this chapter and with Paul's hope for a lasting peace with God in man. The church really is a family, and we're going to be talking today about 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like you to open there. We started to talk about the fundamentals, or back to the basics. Life-giving reality or empty promises. Because the text that we're talking about today in 1 Corinthians 15 is in many ways the most fundamental text in all the New Testament. Because whether or not you believe this text, whether or not you're willing to build your life upon it, determines where you spend eternity. The text begins at 1 Corinthians 15 with the Apostle Paul reminding the Corinthians of what happened when he came to preach among them. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news. It's the good news that I preached to you. This is the gospel that I proclaimed to you when I came to Corinth. How did you respond to that gospel? Well, you received it. You opened your lives to the gospel. And you've taken your stand on that gospel. You have said, this is the foundation I'm going to build my life upon. By this very gospel, you are being saved. The present tense of salvation. By this gospel, you are being saved if you hold fast or hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. And the idea there is not that your salvation is tenuous. Maybe you're going to hang on. Maybe you're not. What it's saying is that true faith is a holding on faith. That it's not just a past tense faith. It's not just a future faith. But it's a holding on, a holding fast faith. A faith that causes us to believe today. As we're sitting here today, strength comes as we build one another's faith. Strength comes as we sing together, as we say an encouraging word together. Because there's two kinds of people in the world. The whole world biblically divides into those that don't believe the message we're going to share today and those that do. And all of you are going to go out in campuses and in work and in neighborhoods where some of the people believe and they hold fast to that belief and they're your brothers and sisters, whether or not they come here to this particular family of believers or not, then there's those that don't. And when you're among a whole lot of people that don't, it gets discouraging at times, doesn't it? And sometimes it gets disheartening. Sometimes you wonder, well, how do I know that it's all true? How do I know that what they're living for isn't genuinely the answer? And it's a very subtle game, a very difficult game that Satan plays with us. And that's why our gathering together is so important. And what makes us one is the fact that we as a body of believers have received the gospel message that the Apostle Paul is talking about. The most fundamental thing to become a part of this particular family of believers is down deep in your heart, in the very depths of your soul, are you building your hope for eternity on the fact that Christ died for you, on the fact that Christ rose again, and you are trusting completely in that gift that Christ wants to give you of eternal life. You might not remember the exact time. You might not remember the exact moment. But in your heart, 
if you are fully and completely responding to the personal Christ like that, then you're a member of what the Scripture calls the body of Christ, which is an invisible body. We mean that it's invisible in the sense that there's no buildings, there's no hierarchy that you can look to except the hierarchy of Christ, which defines it. It's composed of Roman Catholics and converted Jews and Protestants and Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Bible church people that have genuinely come to Christ wherever you might find them. That's the universal body of Christ. You say, well, Dave, what are you talking about when you talk about the gospel? You know, I think the gospel is one of those English words that we use over and over again that we just throw it around and we all think we know what it means and probably a lot of us do know what it means, but we need to be reminded. And what Paul does in this passage is he talks about why are we together today? If you were to say, Dave, why should I be here as I go through the week and as I meet other believers that know Christ as my Savior, as their Savior, why should I reach out to them? The reason is that you found the ultimate truth. You have found the answer to the riddle of life. You have found the answer to the most important question, where are you going? Because the good news that the Apostle Paul had presented to the Corinthians was a message that was of fundamental importance. Look what he says. For what I've received, this is verse 3, for what I've received, I passed on to you of first importance. What Paul is saying is that I've received a message of truth. He's saying there was a group of people that knew the truth, and I've received it from them. The Apostle Paul would also say in the book of Galatians that he received his message by a direct revelation from God. So if someone were to ask you, why do you believe in the gospel? You don't have to say, well, it makes me feel good. I was raised that way. I think it's a nice thing. It kind of makes me feel good once a week. You don't want to answer like that. If someone says, why do you believe in the gospel? You want to say, because on credible witness on witnesses that were willing to bank their very life on their faith. That's what my faith is built on. It's built on the truthfulness of Jesus. It's built on the truthfulness of a group of men that were intimate with Jesus. Men that were willing to risk their lives and women included in the 500 that we're going to see today. And my faith is built on the fact that I believe with all my heart that Jesus tells the truth and his witnesses told the truth. And that's the argument of this passage. So Paul says that he received this message, he passed it on to the Corinthians, and this was of first importance. What does it mean it's of first importance? It's the whole reason for us being together as a church. You're going to be tempted as we go through church life together because of personality conflicts, because of problems in your own life, because of financial difficulties, any number of things that Satan will bring against you. It can cause doubts. It can cause fears. It can cause very strong emotions to want to pull away from God's people. And you can say, well, I'm not sure I really want to be joined with these people. I'm not sure I really want to be a part of this. You need to come back to 1 Corinthians 15. I do it time and time again. It's so important to come back to the fundamentals. 
And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important. He says this is of first importance. He's saying this is the reason the Corinthians need to get along. This is the reason we need to have a great vision for what God can do in our town, in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in the world. We have found the thing that's of first importance, the most important thing in all of life. I guarantee you, if you build your life on this first importance, you'll be going strong when you're old. I guarantee you. And if you don't, if you build on some other foundations, then you're going to go through several crises in your life, several crises of meaning. You could work for a degree. You'll find out the degree doesn't help you. You don't get the job you thought you should get. Or you get the job you thought you should get, and then it doesn't do anything for you. Or you get the job that you thought you should get, you work at it for 35 years, you climb up the ladder, at times you feel really good in your life, you really feel fulfilled, and then all of a sudden you get at the end of 35 years and you look back and you say, well, what did I do? Who cares? And I work with people and I see people all the time that have built their life on things that are not of first importance. And I work with a lot of other people that have built their lives on the things that are of first importance. And I say to our children today, I say to our teenagers today, I say to every one of us as adults, today you need to catch a vision of what's of first importance. And we need to be encouraged, we need to be renewed in our commitment to this thing that's of first importance. Because if you get involved in passing this tradition, this fact, this reality on to other people. If you begin to get up in the morning and you're part of this great mission to take this first thing of importance into every walk of life, then when you get to be 70, if the Lord gives you that much time, you'll still be going strong in your spirit, I promise you. You'll still be young inside. Your body might start to creak but your spirit will be as strong as you can imagine because this is of first importance. It's true. Now, I can't underline how important it is that you think clearly about this because as I look back over my life, life is a number of decisions that you make where you decide what's going to be of first importance. What's going to be what I drive for? What's going to be what I'm pushing for? What's going to be what I think will bring meaning? And the Apostle Paul is saying, as a church family, this is of first importance. And it's true. Now, what is it? It's a basic message of truth. The basic message of truth, it's so simple that all of you know it, and yet it's so strategic that Satan's constantly working on us to forget it. The first element of the message is something you probably wouldn't even see. That Christ died for our sins. Now, if I read the phrase that Christ died for our sins, when I mention the word Christ to you, when you just hear the word Christ, for example, a lot of you hear it during the week as a five-letter, let's see, how many letters is that? Six? You hear it as a six-letter, four-letter word, don't you? Oh, a fill-in, right? Now, what does that person think about it? They really don't think anything about it. It's just kind of a, you know, like 
catch-all. You know, anytime something goes wrong, you go, oh. But in our circles, when I mention the word Christ, what do you think of? You think of Jesus, Christ, Lord. What's the difference? In fact, if you're writing an essay on, on Jesus, if you want a little variation in theme, you write Jesus in one paragraph, Christ in the next, Lord in the next. What's the difference? You see, in English, when it says that this is of first importance that Christ died for our sins, you could say, well, just change it. Jesus died for our sins. No difference, right? Christ died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Any difference in that phrase? When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church would have Jews in it, but it would also have Gentiles in it. In fact, dominantly Gentiles. But the Gentiles had Jews in the group as well. How many of you have ever heard of a completed Jew? What do we mean by a completed Jew? A Jew that's completed is a Jew that has come to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Now in our society, that is a mind-blowing idea. Like we were down at A&M visiting with Kent yesterday, and Kent's the chaplain, and I, so I'm looking up on the board at all the religious activities, and I noticed you had to say on the board, he has verses on the board, and on the board he has to say, I can do all things through, what's the word there? Who strengtheneth me. But Kent really couldn't write that on the A&M board. See, there's a difference in these words, and underneath we know there's a difference. On the A&M board he had to write, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know why? Because they had the temple of Bar Shalom that was on the religious sheet as well. You see, this is a plurality of community. So when we're talking about religion generally, we can't say I can do all things through Christ. Why? Because when you say that, you're saying Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, Kent really believes that, and that's what he would teach in Bible studies. But we're used to a society that doesn't want to say that. Now, when I say that, I want to make something very clear. I am very aware of the terrible things that have been done to Jewish people in the name of, quote, quote, Christ, Jesus. And whenever we're dealing with Jews, we need to remember that history and be very careful to join them in hating cultural religion that became just politics and then became brutal murder. You see, there's been times in the history of Christianity where Christianity was the dominant political force in a country like Germany, in a country like Spain, and they would call Jews in and they would use political might and not political might, they would use the sword to say, you confess that Jesus is the Messiah or you get sword, you know, you get slashed, you lose your life, your head rolls, you go through the Inquisition. That's happened. That shows you how terrible the battle between truth and falsity, between evil and good, between the true Christ and false Christ, how wicked that battle can be. But in recognizing that history, it's very important for us to understand that the truth of God's revelation is this. 
Jesus is not a Protestant religious symbol. You see, what Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, that is so important, is you live in a universe where from the beginnings of time, the true God has been speaking to mankind. From the beginnings of history, the true God has been speaking to mankind. Before there were Jewish people, before the days of Abraham, Abraham founded the Jewish people. Before Abraham was, there was the true God promising mankind he would send a deliverer from their sins. He would send help for them. Adam knew that. Right after Adam's sin, God promised Adam and he promised Eve, Eve will have a male child. The woman will have a male child. A daughter of Eve will have a male child and he will bruise the head of the serpent. He will deal with your enemy. He will deal with your sin. Eve's first child, she said, I've gotten a man-child from the Lord. She thought maybe he was the deliverer. He wasn't. He was just the opposite. He was the murderer Cain. But from the beginning dawn of this time of our generation of humanity, all mankind are brothers and sisters in this reality that from the beginning of our race, the beginning of our people like us, Adam and Eve, the founders of our race, there's been a promise that a deliverer would come. Abraham, the deliverer, started to be focused. And Abraham was promised that a boy Isaac, a miracle child, would be born to him. And this promised deliverer would come from Isaac. Isaac was born. And Isaac produced Jacob. And Jacob produced 12 sons. And then God promised and he chose one of those sons. A strange choice. A choice of grace. Judah. Judah was chosen to be the one who would have that royal delivering line. And then God reached many years later into the stories you all know well. But this is how all of your Sunday school stories go together. It's the meaning of the whole story. God reached down and touched the shepherd boy. And that shepherd boy, he said, would be the king of Israel, the king of Judah. But most important of all, he promised that young shepherd boy that he would become a king. His line would become a kingdom that would last forever and ever. And David was inspired by the Lord to write inspired literature that graphically portrayed the feelings and the thoughts and the agony of his future child. The ultimate King David in Psalm 22, David writes in living color the agony and the feelings and the heart of his heir that would die on the cross of Calvary. That's what the Old Testament's about. It's very important to realize, you see, when you go away to university, some of you kids, when some of you as adults are exposed to some thinking in the modern world, you'll get this idea that everybody's just been kind of groping for the truth. And there's all different ways to get it. And through evolution, we're kind of moving towards a new age, maybe the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And it, and it sounds so with it. And basically, the ultimate feeling you have is we all just need to accept one another because there's truth in a lot of different religious faiths. What I want to share with you, brothers and sisters, is the Bible cuts across all that and says that Jesus is the Christ. 
If you're working with a Jew at work, you need to love that Jewish person. In fact, I would encourage you very much to love their culture. They're such a beautiful culture. I love that culture. You can learn so much. It's such a rich culture. There's so much uh, tradition and beauty behind it. But you know, when my brother Ron had a sixth grade teacher named Joseph Phelps, my little brother Ron is a sixth grader, a young sixth grader. His sixth grade teacher would say, Ron, what makes you different? That's unusual when a sixth grade teacher asks this boy, you seem to have kind of a joy in your life. There's a peace in your life. What's going on? And from some of the essays that Ron wrote in sixth grade, though they might not have been so good in English, he was sharing his life and testimony. And Joe started to hear about a Messiah. And a little six-year-old boy challenged his Jewish sixth grade teacher that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And Joe and his wife began to study very carefully, and they began to read their Old Testament scriptures, and they began to read some of the literature that had been written on this, and by the end of Ron's sixth grade year, the Feltas became completed Jews. And now they've gone on, they've become part of, uh, of a Jewish families of believers and, and interacted a lot with a mission from Jewish missions to reach out to other Jews. But you know, that would have never happened if Ron would have said, well, I have my faith, you know, I'm a Bible churcher, you know, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm a, I'm a good Protestant, and Mr. Phelps, you're a good Jew, and everything's just great. Now, Ron didn't say, you know, Mr. Phelps, you've got to believe like me, or I'm going to put a sword through you. I'm going to force you to do that, because faith can never be forced. You see, the Bible tells us we can never force faith. You always have to just share and proclaim a message. Do you understand the difference? You see, I can go and talk to Jews. I can carry on dialogue with Jews. I can, I can get to know them intimately, and I can never force my faith upon them. But I'm under obligation to share from the depths of my heart the truth. And that's what I would like all of us to start doing in the marketplace of our life in the banks, in the schools, throughout our entire community. I'd like us to start realizing it's the truth. And we've got to stand so strongly against all this relativity that everything is just the same. You see, it's totally ludicrous to say there's a Jewish faith and there's a Christian faith and both of them are true. Because they can't possibly be true. It's like saying that negative is positive. They're different, very different. And what they're teaching is very different. And either Jesus is the Messiah, as Paul is saying, and as he believes, or he's not. So the first element of the gospel is this uniqueness that we're talking about the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one who from the beginning of time was promised he would come. And we're to tell the story everywhere that he's come, that he's coming again, that we're living in a world where God is opening his arms in grace to redeem and to bring forgiveness. Now, what has this Messiah done? Well, the little kids in the audience all know the answer to that. He died for my sins. But what does it mean that he died for my sins. That's a hard phrase. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's a very general phrase. It means he died concerning my sins. What was it concerning my sins that he died for? 
fact, usually this phrase is used in the New Testament like, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. What's the finish of that? For? You see, that's the way you usually think of it. If I say I'm going to do something for you, I wouldn't say, well, I'm going to do something for your sin. That's kind of a strange phrase. I'm going to do something for you, for your benefit. That's the way the word's usually used. So what does this phrase, Christ died for our sins? It was certainly not for the benefit of our sins. They help our sins out, right? But it was in a way. You see, what this phrase is telling us is Christ died in order to deal with our sins. It's concerning our sins that the death of Christ occurred. And the word death reminds us of this whole idea of the sacrifice. Especially because the very next phrase is what? He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not according to what I say, but according to the Scriptures. Now what Scriptures would the Corinthians have? This is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. So they don't have Matthew yet. Do they, Dave, I don't think? Probably not. All right, so they don't, probably don't have Matthew. They might have Mark, but probably in very early passing it on from one church to the next. They don't have Revelation. This is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. So what is their scriptures? When Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and it has to be the Old Testament scriptures. When you read the word died, and you think of the Old Testament scriptures, if you were reading through the Old Testament, you said, all right, die. What does it have to do with the Old Testament? What would you think about if you were Jewish? What kind of death would you think about in the Old Testament? The sacrifice. You see, if you were Jewish, you would be raised from the time you were little kids. Every year at Passover time. In the spring, if you were good Jewish Old Testament people, what you remember at Passover is every kid would remember a really tough time. Because your daddy would go out and he would get a beautiful fluffy little lamb. And he'd bring that lamb into your house and get you acquainted with it. You'd begin to treat it like a pet. And then on Passover evening, he would kill the lamb. You would go to the temple, and the priest, as the ritual developed, and initially it was done right with the families, but as the temple was developed, it would happen in the temple precincts, you would go with your parents, and they would slice the neck of the lamb, and blood would go everywhere. And that's not a nice sight. In fact, Josephus tells us the blood would flow at Passover. I mean, it was like rivers flowing down into the Kidron Valley. Can you imagine being a little kid? And man, this is what you go through. Every Passover, every Day of Atonement. Judaism in the Old Testament was a religion of sacrificial blood. Now, what is all that about? You see, that's one of the big issues in modern Judaism. What is all this sacrifice about? If you read someone like Herman Wouk, he'll say it's, it's the leftover of the primitive religions, of the violence and the idea of trying to appease a vicious, angry deity. But as I read the pages of the Old Testament, God is angry. He is very upset. But He's not capricious. He's not the Canaanite god Baal. Instead, I see a God that's always consistent, always just, always true to His character. 
He never grades on the curve. He always is righteous. He always conforms to the standard. And I think of this God who reveals Himself mightily in the Ten Commandments and He's so consistent and He's so unapproachable. And then I see these rivers of blood and God is telling me that somehow through these sacrifices, through these deaths, there can be the beginning of nearness to God. King David can say, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. He's saying, I can have my dad dip a branch into the Passover sacrificial lamb and he can put it on the doorpost and somehow, by an unbelievable gift, the death penalty won't be executed against me for murder, for adultery, for lying, for idolatry, for covetousness, somehow when the hyssop is put with a blood on the door, somehow this righteous holy God suddenly changes and He's not angry and He's not rejecting me. He's not my judge. Instead, He opens His arms like a father and I become His son. And the Old Testament never really completely answers the question, how does this sacrifice do it? And that's why on a, on a Dead Sea region, down by the River Jordan, when a rugged Elijah-like prophet that ate locusts and wore skins, one day when he looked across the plains and Jesus walked toward them and he looked at, and he yelled for all the crowd to hear, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Suddenly, those precious Old Testament men and women of faith, the Holy Spirit caused the light to dawn on their mind, and they began to see, this is it! This is it! This is Isaiah 53 that we've never been able to understand. What it was all that stuff about a suffering servant who became a lamb that would be sacrificed like, a, like an animal on an altar. What was all that about? That God would put all of our sins upon this suffering servant and somehow we would be forgiven based upon that. He would suffer for our sins, not for His own. And when John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, suddenly all the lights came on. And that's what Paul, if Paul were here today, he would say, brothers and sisters, that's what I remind you of. This great history of redemption, this great story that's been told, it's a true story. It's the lambs that were sacrificed and the rams and the sheep and all that blood that flowed was a reminder you don't just pretend about your sin. You don't just say it's no big deal. It tears your life apart. It ruins everything. It ultimately puts all of us in the grave. And it cries out for justice for the punishment of eternal death. And yet the great truth we build all of our lives upon, the Messiah died as a sacrifice for our sins, to deal with our sins according to the Scripture. You know what it means? As you think about God and you face the truth about your life, a lot of you hang your heads in shame and you say, well, God could never want me. Some of you, even as believers, do that. The reason you really don't go on, the reason you're really not excited about sharing this with kids 
and sharing it with young college students and sharing it with adults is because you're not just so excited about it because you feel so lousy. You feel so bad inside. You say, well, Dave, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things I've thought. You don't know the, the people I've let down. My life is just not what it ought to be. And it never is going to be what it ought to be through your own effort. But you know what this phrase means? It means for every one of you, beginning right here with Eric and going all the way around, this phrase means Christ died for your sins. You know what that means? The blood has been shed. You are forgiven. You are free. You're not in the courtroom anymore. Get out of it. Go out and be sons. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine sitting in the Waxahachie courthouse and you're under this terrible penalty? You have totally blown it. You ought to get the death penalty. And suddenly the judge says, you're free. Get out of here. You're totally free. You say, wait a minute. I'm totally guilty. I'm a criminal. I did something horrible. And the judge says, no, you haven't. It's all paid for. It's all forgotten. It's all forgiven. It's already been paid for. It can't be paid for again. Isn't that incredible? That's what grace is, and that's what the good news is. But it's so hard for us to believe it as I've been raised with that message, but it's still hard for me to believe. You see, most of you are still living your lives on the basis of justice. You do it in friendships, you do it in your work, you do it everywhere. You're always trying to make things even. So you spend half your life angry because it's never fair. Life is not fair. What I just wrote to you doesn't sound very fair. The way most of us live our lives, we would hear this phrase, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and we would say, that's nice, but wait a minute. Let me do something. Let me throw in a couple dollars. You know, we're going to all go out together to eat, and let's, let's even it up. You see, when you go out to eat with Christ, Christ picks up the check and says, it's all taken care of. And you go, no, no, I'm going to help you a little bit. He says, oh, no, you're not. You can't pay one blessed thing. Sit down, buy the biggest steak you can, and enjoy it. Because it's my payment. Do you understand that? I don't very well. Because my human nature always cries out, nope, I'm going to help you out. And that's why most of us don't really ever enter into the joy. You don't ever enter into the freedom. And that's why we don't tell others too well. Because you're sure not going to sell something that you're not really that excited about. But this, brothers and sisters, whether we're excited about it or not, this is the most incredible, heartfelt, deep-seated joy in all the world. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Your sins have been totally taken care of. And you can go before God when you commit yourself to that precious death and you become God's child. 1 Corinthians stresses the objective reality of Christ's death. Since the rise of the Enlightenment and man's focus only on what he can experience with his senses, the major battle is no longer over Christ's death. The storm today swirls around the issue of whether or not he left the grave clothes behind 
and rose again from the dead. This is where we will pick up our discussion in part two of this message on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11.